so, so my buddy uh, Paul McCurley and Dave Thomas, they portray Star's battery, um, artillery battery. It's a Confederate battery that actually fought against the 10th Iowa at Cox's Crossroads and Cox's Bridge. And they reached into their limber chest one day and pulled out a, a, a piece of, of, of shell, of ordnance shell that had been fired from a, a three-inch ordnance rifle at that battle, that engagement. And they said, yeah, we recovered this from Cox's Bridge. And I always think to myself that if that, I held that piece in my hand and I, I thought to myself, if, if that piece of shell had gone one way or the other, I might not be here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Civil War Regiments podcast. With our recent growth of listeners and the beginning of a new season, I decided to try something different this year. In the same mission of learning, listening, and reading the accounts of actual soldiers, I will now be featuring guests that have deep-dive discussions on soldier life, regiments, combat, and campaigns of the Civil War. I am thrilled and honored to introduce my very first guest, Ivan Ingram. Ivan is a recently retired Lieutenant Colonel of the Marine Corps. He is one of the founding members of MARSOC, serving 24 years in Marine and Special Forces operations. He is also one of the founding members and organizers of 40 Rounds Events, an organization for Civil War living historians. And he is currently CEO of Golden Compass LLC and writes for the blog Task and Purpose, just to name a few of his accolades and accomplishments. So uh, without further ado, welcome, Ivan. Stephen, thanks so much. I really appreciate one that I, your first guest, your inaugural guest, and I also am pleased that you asked me to be on the show with you. And then I, I think that the bar will be suitably low, so the next groups of people that you bring on will, will only keep your, your listeners that much more interested. So hopefully we hit a home run with this tonight. But thanks again. Yeah. And, and thank you, sir. Thank you for taking time out of your uh, very busy schedule. <laughs> so uh, much appreciated. Um, and of course, uh, uh, those of you who heard uh, with uh, Ivan's prior military experience, um, there's a lot that could be talked about, and there's a lot of uh, topics. Uh, Ivan has written many blogs, have been interviewed on many podcasts. So if you'd love to hear more of his uh, talks on his time in the military, or even talks on leadership. Um, you have many interviews out there. I know, like, uh, for me, I went on Spotify, just typed your name, and um, most all your interviews came up. So there's a lot of uh, out there, and I'm sure there's more to come. So with that being said, tonight we're discussing um, aspects of the Civil War, because uh, me and Ivan both share a love of history. Uh, we'll be talking about this. But um, all that to say that... Um, there's so much more out there. So after this interview, please uh, look up some of Ivan's uh, other interviews and uh, to get more on that. But, but yes, tonight uh, we're talking about our, uh, um, our shared hobby in history. So uh, to begin, uh, I'd like to ask you, Ivan, um, how did you discover your love of history or, or your passion for the Civil War? Where, where did that begin for you? It's a long time ago, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I say that uh, probably dating myself a little bit because my father, he bought me a illustrated book called, uh, it's called the How and Why Wonder Book of the American Civil War, and uh -huh. I don't know if I've ever seen a copy of it, 
since it, it long disappeared in one of our many moves when I was a kid. But that had not only illustrations, but it, it was written to the perspective, perspective of, a, of a young reader uh, to, to really learn about not only the battles, but sort of get it the, the overall war itself. And then from there, there was the American Heritage book on the Civil War, which had some really still does have some great illustrations of battle scenes just complete with troop movements and, and the phasings. So I, I thought both of those books were fantastic. So as a young kid, my dad instilled an interest in the war from that, from those two books. And then I found out also that I had ancestors who fought on both sides, Confederates and Union during the war while researching my family genealogy, probably around about the seventh grade. And then there I was tasked to read, but I didn't find it much of a problem to read the red badge of Kurt. <laughs> and then my father took me to Antietam national battlefield. We lived in Maryland at the time. And I, I was hooked from that point on. There was actually a small group of reenactors. Maybe now we'd call them living historians, but uh, there were people in civil war clothing near mm -hmm. the current visitor center and also camp near the Dunker church. And I'd never seen anything like that. I didn't know that anybody dressed up or reenacted like that at all. Uh, I'd seen some other sort of medieval living histories, things when I was living in Europe when I was younger. But to see the American Civil War being brought to life at that battlefield, yeah, that, that pretty much cemented it for me. And I, I, I couldn't I couldn't understand uh, why I couldn't at a younger age. But uh, I've been doing this since I've been doing this since 1988. So something something clicked. Wow. And how old were you then when you went to Antietam? I think at that point, I was probably 12 or 13 years old. Oh, well, that, well that's, a, that's a good age, too, as far I mean, you're, you're able to grasp even more than, um, you know, for me, I was eight or nine at my first journeys. But the more the older you get, the more enthused I got. And, and uh, that's great. Wow. Any anything that struck you in particular during that visit? Uh, I know you said reenactors, but like on the battlefield itself, when you went, did uh, as a thirteen-year-old on the, that battleground like that, uh, was there something that spoke to you there? Well, I'd read so much about the, the the battle, and I don't think you really get an appreciation when you're that young. Yeah, kind of for the magnitude of of what happened there. You, you probably haven't read a battle study on a particular battle or, or, or a regimental history. So not only did we see the living history, but then you get an opportunity to go to the sunken lane, go to the cornfield, go to Burnside's bridge. And just being in those areas, standing by of kind of listening to what the battlefield tells you. Yeah. And I know that sounds a little bit ethereal, but when you say spoke to me, that was one of the words or one of the phrases I was going to use in that when you're actually standing on those those parts of the battlefield, when you're act, when you're in those those areas that you've read about for so long, just to be there and physically present takes on a different feel. And I I think at a young age, I, I under maybe didn't understand what that was, but I but I felt it. I, I could could grasp that something was different, uh, and I believe you certainly trip with trip with my father. Opportunity to go see a battlefield, and we were there in the later 
summer, early fall. It just all came together for a, a pretty iconic experience. And that, that's, that's so cool. And I know for many of us, uh, I think many of us start the, the same way where either our fathers took us somewhere um, to a battlefield or a museum for the first time at that age. And, and yeah, there's just something about it. And, and we'll, we'll talk about it, but it's like, uh, uh, I guess it's the drama and all that. It's almost like uh, the Civil War battlefield are the, the, the stuff of knights and castles that there might be in Europe, but that's what we get here in the United States. Um, just these uh, beautiful battlefields, but then just to know that so much happened there on that actual ground. Um, I don't know. It, it just really plays with your imagination when you're out there, whether you're a kid or an adult, where you try to imagine um, what actually happened there. Yeah. And, and I was, I was very fortunate that growing up, because I grew up in Europe, I, I did have an opportunity to experience a little bit of that, that knights and castles, as you just said, uh, environment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I lived in, in Germany and got to see German castles and old Roman forts. And I lived in England and got to walk along Roman roads and visit garrison towns and restored Roman fortifications, uh, Hadrian's Wall. So when, when, when you're when you exposed to that kind of history and, and trying to understand, to see how that th those things come to life, not only through books, but also in museums, uh, I think there's something to be said for living historians who are, who are creating that and building, building it up in such a way that the public, never mind an impressionable young person, can get out of uh, the actual symbolism to see. To, to, in front of them, uh, in, in, in a three-dimensional way, not just, not just a movie, but a, a, a interesting historical interpretation that, that, that surely carried over from my European exposure, exposure to, uh, history in Europe and, my, and where I, my European history experience to then be in, in America and, and have it just so, so close and close at hand to, to see. Well, and, and that's really a, um, a good segue to the next topic. Uh, uh, and you've already uh, mentioned this, uh, seeing the reenactors at Antietam. And uh, we both are reenactors. This isn't really a, a reenacting podcast, but you can't really talk about these things without bringing it up. And like you said, uh, for us uh, historians, lovers of history, um, reenacting gives us an opportunity to kind of uh, break through that wall and actually try and represent or, or live as these uh, soldiers did. And you've been uh, responsible for many opportunities for me to be able to do that. And, and so I'd like to discuss a little bit how you organize uh, events for hardcore reenactors and you give us an opportunity to live as the soldiers did in the 1860s with, with many events. Um, I could name a bunch. Uh, we've had opportunities at uh, Bentonville, um, with a picket post event. Uh, we recreated the Battle of Wauhatchie, um, just to name a few, but um, all of those were arduous experiences. Um, I enjoyed all of them, uh, plenty of moments that I experienced in each one. But if you could talk about what those uh, putting those events together means to you and, and uh, what it meant for the hobby uh, for you to be able to do that. Well, first, let me thank you for, for being a, a regular 
40 rounds event attendee, you've, you've made them all if you went to Rosecrans Pursuit. So we've got a few under our belts. Uh, very, I'll talk about that in a minute, but I should probably go back to what I was talking about in the, the early or during my introduction where I started this in 1988. When I, that was during the 125th anniversary, and I was young. I was a younger guy, but there was no, there was no real differentiation in the hobby that you didn't have sort of the hardcore authentic side you you had people who were more hardcore i had heard that term before they were more authentic but ultimately when you left the parking lot some of you dragged a cooler or in a bigger tent and lived with creature comforts and some people just lived out of their knapsacks and those were kind of the people that i gravitated towards although at first there was creature comforts that the other the other types of people brought with them uh, and they of course would be mainstreamers now but uh i, I really don't don't like to divide the, the mm -hmm. hobby or didn't like to divide the hobby so much and then i kind of ebbed and flowed through my participation in civil war reenacting over many years mostly due to my career but as i came back into it 1990s and then eventually left to go join you know when i was in the marine corps and after 9-11 I did not really participate in true civil war reenacting until the 150th anniversary. I mean, I was involved in living history and doing other things. I had other time periods that I was interested in. Civil war was always at the forefront. So because I, I really didn't understand the differentiation and the, the division within the hobby between hardcores and authentics and, uh, and then progressive and mainstreamers, that was a new lexicon that I had to get used to, to authentic campaigner. And that was that was my real exposure to how the authentic hobby was coming around in the early 2000s, and then by the the, the middle 2000s and and uh, the 150th, that kind of came in the forefront where you you had these events that were called adjuncts. Mm -hmm. And and again, my true exposure to to the hobby was just that we all went to one event, we all participated, in the event, and they were all the 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 event you expected, if you will. If you were hardcore, you knew you were going to be disappointed. If you're mainstream, you wanted to shoot more. It's kind of the differentiation. And uh, I, I think it really came down to 2014. Eric Tipton and I talked about a vision that I had for events. Uh, we were at Pickett's Mill in Georgia in May uh, of 2014. And Eric Tipton had for events that would somehow meet the scale I was used to. You know, This is going back now decades, which now which didn't exist that at the time and now certainly doesn't, but I wanted to look at creating soldiering experiences that focused on not only campaigning, but occasionally battle scenarios. Now I will caveat that having served in actual combat, I, I know that that wasn't something you could accurately capture, uh, but the combat of the civil war is something that could be respectfully attempted within the right scenario. But I wanted to have a larger sort of immersive environment where people could enjoy uh, and attempt to your point of having you know, those moments or things that they read about be conveyed. Uh, so then I, I partnered with uh, A.J. Jerem, Andrew Jerem, to form 40 Rounds events after the Bentonville, well, kind of for the Bentonville, but after the Bentonville event. We'll, we can talk about that a little later. And we, we really had a vision to plan events that we wanted to attend because we recognized that people's time and money were important and they want to enjoy themselves from the very start till the end of the event and that they should be thinking about how much fun they were having before they ever got in the car. And I think we have a, a pretty successful track record. 
also for for immersion and and vignettes for participants. So I'll say the hobby is small. There's lots of divisions within it for such a small group of people, and I seek to kind of bring them together. No, I do seek to bring them together. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, that's hard to do. So we just plan events that uh, people make great, and if not, well, they have options and. That's fine as well. Uh, but organizing events takes a lot of work and it, it, it tests our friendships as AJ will attest. <laughs> and that's why we don't organize that many of them and we're taking some time off from doing so. But that's really the impetus for kind of how, how I got to where I am as far as organizing those and the vision I have for the ones that, that I'll probably, I'll probably eat these words, but uh, going to organize in the, in the future at some point. But I'll pause there in case there's more you want me to expound upon. But I hope I hope that answered that part of that. Oh, it, it does. And and uh, so far, this is great. <laughs> and um, I do have to say, um, it's mind boggling to me. And I know you had help, you know, with AJ and but mind boggling to me that that you were still able to organize and help put these together while you're still actively serving overseas and um i don't know if you can give any hints of what that was like but i I just can't believe it i mean i salute you for your efforts well i I appreciate that and um so it's so if one thing aj's the compliment to my vision like i have the vision i come up with the idea of of what i want to do and i get enthusiastic about it and he kind of scales me back and says well okay this is what it's going to take to make this happen and then we really realistically get into the planning side of things and the problems for the planning usually involve a tyranny of distance and being far away. So we do enlist a lot of support, like for picket post, we had Seth Hancock help us. He's a mess. Number one, member mm. mess. Number one, he's also independent rifles. He's been around for a long time. Very, very good guy. Uh, Rosecrans pursuit had the widow makers mess, particularly Jordan Roberts and a lot of his, of his guys helping out as well. Uh, Wahatchee had help from Tyler Underwood, uh, Pat Landrum assisted with recruiting. Um, and then of course, you know, Bentonville that, that took a lot of work on, on my behalf, but I had Taylor McCullen helping me. So we don't do any of these alone. And we also find very cooperative, supportive landowners who go out actually and talk to their neighbors about this crazy stuff that we want to do. You don't just show up at a place like where we did Wahatchee and, and shoot cannons and do airbursts uh, all at night with, you know, without the neighbors approving what you're going to do before the sheriff shows up. So, and, and we had, we had talked to the, to the local police about that as well. The magistrates about that, just to make sure that we were, we were good. So yeah, there's a lot of planning goes on. Honestly, the weekend is easy to plan around because you say, okay, this, I want to do this selfishly. It worked out for when I would not be deployed or doing something, but all the planning and things are going in between we can't do it alone and it takes it takes a heck of a lot of people who are dedicated and they, and they share that vision and i've been very fortunate not only in my own timing but also to have very good people who want to see what we're doing or see what we're doing and want to see it come to fruition you know steve brewington was another big help at wahatchee as well i'm probably forgetting a few more people who will then send me nasty emails or call me and say hey, i didn't didn't get shouted out at on the on the steven lunsford podcast but hey that, i mean seriously i'm, I'm to, to my friends and the people that have, have come out to help. And never mind, you know, the participants and the people who register and make really big commitments and time and effort and money to, to come do those. It's super appreciated. So. And, uh, and we, uh, the attendees um, appreciate uh, you and everyone who helped uh, 
put all these many events together. And and for the sake of the listeners, um, I'm, I'm going to give a brief rundown of an example of some of these events and what exactly they were and, and what we did there. And um, as you said, it all started with that uh, Bentonville where we uh, – we got to do this on the actual battlefield of Bentonville, the state park up there or state historic site. And we portrayed the 10th Iowa Infantry Regiment. Uh, we, we had a full scale regiment. So in, in what we do in the side of the hobby, we have opportunities where we can try to recreate um, a full scale, flexible moving uh, regiment. And, and that was incredible. And to me, um, our campsite is something that I've never uh, forgot. Um, these years just uh, we're camped off in the woods like what 300 of us and we're all we have a little shelter have Three, 350 350 <laughs> 350 wow I mean you don't get those opportunities much and we were portraying uh, the 10th Iowa uh, and the core badge of the core they were in, were in was the 40 rounds core badge hence the name of of your group too and for me, uh, I love that core badge. <laughs> when we put it on, we all had it on our hats and and all that. But um, uh, one thing we did at that event was we we actually got to dig rifle pits. You know, we, we were using plates, bayonets, and trenching tools. And and for me, like doing it while we were under fire during the middle of the battle reenactment, um, that was a moment where it just uh, came alive for me. You know, just what it would be like for a whole, you know. Uh, you know, we might have a detail every now and then an event where four guys have to dig a little hole somewhere. But when you have 300, more than 300 guys digging at the same time, it, it just shows you how fast uh, they could put up a rifle pit or a trench. And um, it, it's really incredible stuff there. And and uh, I'll never forget that battle. At one point, we were also depicting how at one point the Union Army at Bentonville was getting hit on, on two sides, um, nearly surrounded. And we had that, and uh, the firefight, and we were getting attacked. And uh, I was near the color guards. I was near the Iowa regimental flags. And uh, I'll never forget. At one point, yeah, um, you get up in front of us, and you're pointing at us, and you're telling us to keep firing, keep it hot. And um, having your seriousness uh, with that, and your commitment to it, it kind of it helps us with the facade as far as. I've been to events where, okay, maybe the commander is not into it or maybe the NCOs aren't into it or, or like, oh, this is just a, a hokey event and nobody's in the mood. But it's moments like that, digging up the rock and then having you uh, stay in that character in that mode of being the colonel of the battalion, uh, that really spoke to me um, in that event. If you have anything to add about uh, that event in particular. That well, it's great praise. I'm glad you had a, a great time. I, I will say uh, my, my flavor is not for everybody. I admit, <laughs> I admit that. But you know, I am who I am, and I hope that as we go forward, I think there's some a great command team that, that Rob Warren and I are going to be forming for Blakely. So I do hope people will will want to come and be on board with that. Rob and I are, are, are different in the way we approach things, but we we're no less dedicated to the people that we're going to be working with and and see it as a as a partnership that that we have to deliver on. And there are plenty of good living history units and, and people that had supported not only 40 round events, but do their own stuff. Certainly the independent rifles, the Liberty rifles, uh, there, there, there are people working at, even at small levels to, to put on very good events like the armory guards. And, uh, 
also down in uh, in Florida, Gavin Thomas and his guys. There, there's just a, a lot of really dedicated people who are working pretty pretty strong hours and putting a lot of time into to ensure people have a good time. And people can't get to every event, I know. But uh, that is exactly what we try to do in, in, in the 40 rounds events anyway, is to have people come away from, from that, not only with a vignette or at least an impression for, for being part of what they've read about and what they see. So that's, that's, that's really cool of you to say. It's great for you to say, Steve. Appreciate that. Oh, thank you, Ivan. Thank you. And, and uh, you're welcome for all that. <laughs> and and uh, uh, to add just a, a couple more, uh, just to, uh, to give people, because we keep naming these names and some listeners will be like, well, what did they talk about? Wahatchee or Rose Crince Pursuit? What? And uh, so Wahatchee uh, uh, was the actual, we depicted the actual battle of uh, Tennessee. And uh, that was fought in October 1863. And the cool thing that always attracted me to that battle was it was East versus East in the West, where you have elements of Longstreet's Corps versus elements of the 11th and 12th. And, and it was it was one of the very few very few battles in the Civil War uh, fought at night. That's really, yeah. pretty unique. Yeah. And 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 okay, that this was an example of an event that I was involved with as far as um, some of the organizing goes, and so. I, I got some of the inside scoop on the organizing for that process, but what, it, what I appreciated at Bentonville and some of the others just being uh, a private, um, I love the unknown factor where I didn't know what was going to happen. So while Hatchy, what makes it, uh, uh, it's not a disappointment, but like sometimes it's more upsetting knowing what was missed out or left out versus the unknown. So while Hatchy, you know, we had all, the plans to, to really have a, a full scale night battle. And it was really, uh, but we had mother nature uh, get involved for that one. And uh, we really <laughs> experienced a lot. Um, we had heavy rain, you know, cold temperatures, um, a lot of that backfired on us. We had a lot of attrition, but so we found ourselves um, a full regiment again. Uh, we were portraying uh, Green's New York brigade. And, uh, and then the, I think the Confederates were portraying uh, Micah Jenkins' South Carolina Brigade. That's right. But, you know, we had a, a regiment versus regiment, basically, a brigade versus brigade. But um, uh, <laughs> instead of focusing on uh, what we were hoping to focus on, we ended up having to focus on surviving. And surviving a harrowing 36 hours, uh, it felt like a lifetime out there for most of us. But um, it, it really... Um, being in the cold temperatures, you know, like uh, um, a lot of us, you know, we, we put aside any differences and you're just trying to survive and get through it. But it, it, it did, for me, reveal a lot of what these the actual soldiers went through. And I'm just doing it on a weekend. Mm-hmm. We're all just doing this for a few hours. These guys have had to do this, and they certainly did, for weeks on end or months on end uh, without – resupply or you know um you take it for granted but when we get a moment like this um you know yeah people people say like well why would you suffer like that it's for a hobby but um for me it it helps me honor and respect the original soldiers more by the hardships that we go through little as they are compared to what they do and if you have anything to add about the the Wahatchee experience well, Dwyhatchee was challenging. The the weather, certainly trying to keep 
keep everyone focused and motivated on both sides. And, and Tyler Underwood and, and and his guys did it did a, a good job as anybody could do, particularly because we, we knew that the day itself was actually going to be kind of boring and had everything worked weather-wise the way we wanted to, you really just be doing a lot of, on the Confederate side, a lot of drilling and sitting around camp life. And then it on the federal side would be picketing and sending out patrols and improving your position. Other than that, we knew that we had a long day to kill. That makes it really hard to occupy people and have them not think about all the things they're going through when it's cold and miserable like that. So I will not anybody who decided they wanted to leave. Certainly we want people to stay. I have bailed in an event. I won't, I couldn't possibly wag my finger at someone and, and not have admitted that myself. So we've all kind of found that point where we want, we've all found that point, particularly maybe if you're a modern military guy and you're like, I don't have to be out in this stuff. I could be doing something else or you just don't like it. I, I, I get it. Fair weather makes a, for a better event, but then it point of, are you doing this? Why are, why were you there? Why are you showing up in the first place? And sure, you know, it's going to rain, you know, it's going to be miserable. Uh, people have to make their own decision. I am thankful for all the people who did stay. I think the payoff was, was well worth it. I think it was a good example of just what you talked about soldier life that led to a swift engagement that ended and, and then it, and then it was over. So the, the civil experience, the reason that we all are ostensibly doing this kind of is different to each person. I don't understand why people are predisposed to, to leave, but sometimes they do. Um, and the other side of it is I think it's a commitment, not only as an event organizer that you're going to put on your event and you're going to give the, the best thing that you can. And Gavin Thomas did an awesome job with this down in Florida a couple of uh, about a month. And then because he, he was dealing with some serious challenges, not only his site, but keeping the site uh, working. And he put on a really good show. Those guys put on a, on a, a very quality living history base event. I think anybody who went there said they had a good time. So it's the, 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 the experience is out there. The ability to enjoy yourself is out there. It's just a matter of the level of commitment of the participant that the event organizers are already taking the time to do so. So if they're writing you that contract, I think it's a reciprocated thing or can be reciprocated if the, the participants stick it out. Oh yeah, exactly. And um, it, it's really, it's, yeah, it's really the luck of the draw in so many mm. events. You hope, you hope the guys show up, you hope the event is a success and, and sometimes stuff comes out of left field and, and you still hope that uh, uh, you're able to consolidate everything into a, a makeshift uh, memorable event. Yeah, and Eric, Eric, Eric Tipton and, and his, his crew putting together Missionary Ridge. And he, yeah. he's told me before, if, if it had rained and been miserable at that point in November, uh, <laughs> that event would have gone completely different. But it didn't, and, and it came out well. There were some, some hiccups between command structures and just an understanding of the scenario in some some places but ultimately overall largely transparent and that's what we try and do in a lot of these event planning is make any of those hiccups transparent to the participants so they're just like just enjoying the weekend and by the time they hit the waffle house 
Walker Barrel on Sunday <laughs> that there are about having have, what a good time they had and they, they can't wait to get to the next one and that's that's what it should do it should feed to the to, to another experience something else people are looking for yes and and one more um i, I just want to touch on uh the most recent or um or the last really big Ford Riles effort uh rose Crane's pursuit which was this past uh september and uh this took place in georgia um and uh it was the whole uh uh, the purpose of the event was the movement leading up to the Battle of Chickamauga, so the movement between the two armies, and um, and and to kind of uh, go back a little bit, um, uh, again, these type of events that, that we're talking about, these are events where many times they're way out in the middle of nowhere, but we are living out of our packs. We, we, we're we're loaded down with knapsacks. Uh, we have supplies. We have uh, time period rations. Um, we are really going back in time for a weekend and, and that really opens the door to the experiences we talked about. But um, it, it's really, we're really going off the grid in a sense. And uh, for me, it's like almost like a retreat when I, when I do these events where <laughs> like a men's retreat in the woods in the sense where <laughs> there um, and you really do go back in time. And, uh, and I'm going to segue from that into Rose Prince suit in that um, this effort um, brought to life almost a, a full-scale army in a sense, where we had a regiment, we portrayed uh, the 10th Wisconsin. We had a full uh, wagon detail with supplies. We had mounted artillery uh, with us on the march, and we had an opposing force of Confederate uh, infantry. Um, and we all we also had federal cavalry. <laughs> And uh, but but to see infantry, cavalry, artillery, and wagons all on the march together, and it was a smaller scale, but it, it really you know gave me an idea of an army on the march and a moving army. And uh, the funny thing is, we we had like I don't know three or four different uh, campsites, but and it was all within this perimeter of this property. But it really, like in a way, it felt like we were marching for several days, and it was our different stopping points. Like, um, like I have my own memories of each different campsite. But um, every now and then, like just while we were taking a break by the side of the road, watching the mounted artillery gallop past us, or watching the wagons get unloaded, just sitting there and watching army life happen. Um, uh, that was remarkable to me. If you have anything to, to add on that. That was the point. <laughs> I yeah. mean, and, and, and not trying to, to pat, pat myself too hard on the back. As I said, a lot of, a lot of planning, a lot of things went into that and our comments, particularly on the mounted side, the, the infantry is actually kind of easy. You show up and put your knapsack on, <laughs> grab your, yeah. grab your musket and just get in line and get ready to go. Uh, me, me riding my own horse, uh, having my own, my own animal to, to be concerned about that was, it was acting as my, my orderly, my mounted orderly helped keep me moving. Cause not only was I working all of the pieces for the event, but certainly had to keep the horses good and, and fed for the weekend. But then multiply by 40 for all the mounts mm -hmm. and all the, 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 the pulling animals, horses and mules 
for the ambulance, the wagons, the cannons, the caisson, all of those items. And then 20 riders with Stephen Dacus and his guys, Ethan Harrington, you've just got a, a tremendous logistical commitment. And so take all of that out of the parking lot and put that into a scenario that's mobile and requires support for all of those participants. Also the, the Confederates with their own mounts and their own people on the, on the opposing side and having to put that all together. Yes. You're, you're it's a very complex immersive experience that we want people to come away with. And the way I looked at it is we're planning an event that all of, I think we had close to 700 people registered. I don't believe that many sh- attended, but, but we want all the attendees each having an individual experience, regardless of where they are. The cavalrys are all the cavalry participants are all going to see it from one side. The artillery are all going to see it from another. The infantry will witness it from yet another. And it's all triangulated and working together. Then you have the, the, the opposing force. And then we, we also had, of course, the uh, pyrotechnics and demolitions that we had set up as well. So there's just, there was just a ton of things that went into that. I liked that it all came off the way it was supposed to. And the fact you said you got to see soldier life, never mind the vignettes that we were putting together. I, I really thought that was exactly what we, we set out to do. So, I mean, I, it was a long drive home, but I was glad we did it. Well, thank you again uh, for that. And uh, uh, one little thing I had to add to that is, is um, we were, I don't know what time it was, like four in the morning that Sunday, uh, the infantry all fell in for the march. And and I remember we were all waiting in line forever. And I mean, there's a lot of hurry up and wait stuff. But I remember uh, somebody said, well, they're waiting on the, the cavalry and the artillery. And and then I started thinking like it, our, our camp was like pitch black mm-hmm. night. And I'm like, how in the world? Are those guys hitching up their wagons or artillery at, at night, you know, getting those horses ready? Like, that had to be – I mean, the, great. I'm sure they're good at their jobs, but, like, I couldn't even fathom them having to do that in the dark. Right, and having having done it with them in daylight, I know how complex it is to get that all correct. And it's not something you can mess up. Like It must be done. Yeah. It must be done right. It has to be done carefully. And they were doing it by feel. And they respected that there were not going to be any candles. And that's how it was during the actual battle. They withdrew very silently, very quietly to prevent alerting uh, the Confederates to, to offering them an attack at, uh, at, at three o'clock in the morning, which they didn't, they were trying to avoid. So I think for a fact that uh, probably the guys who had the hardest job, people, it's a little bit easier, as I did it in the middle of the night, to tack up a horse and get it get it ready to ride than it is to hitch six of them up to a artillery piece in its limber and get it moving. So, yeah, that's that's a, if you notice that and people were thinking about that, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And I will say that the first section guys did a phenomenal job, and they've reached out to me and asked you know when they can do it again. And my answer is not anytime soon, but we're we're thinking about it. So, <laughs> oh yeah. Well, there's always yeah. something forward to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, that was great. And um, to kind of move on um, from the reenacting side of things and, and back to uh, uh, the, the real story, the real history, um, 
you know, I, I find um, with a lot of people that that aren't familiar with the Civil War or, or what actually happened, you know, you know, many people have a hard time understanding why soldiers fought the way they did in the Civil War. And, and by that, I mean like a chess game where you have these guys lined up on one side and another opposing force on the other side in an open field, like like uh, taking turns shooting at each other. People uh, don't get it. You know, they consider it suicidal in a sense. And, you know, these, you know, big national reenactments, you know, national mainstream events where there might be 10,000 or more reenactors, uh, that in movies might be the only way that people kind of get an idea of what Civil War combat looks like. And um, uh, it, it does. It does. I know as a spectator, even at some of the huge events of the past, where you see 10, 15,000 reenactors on the field, you really do get a sense of what it was like and all that. But, you know, but uh, in, in a small terms, um, uh, to discuss a little bit on, on how and why the soldiers did fight the way that they did during the Civil War. Yeah, it's a great point. I don't know the scale that you, you're, you're talking about, 10 to 15,000 people. Uh, on the, I don't even know if there's a ten thousand Civil War reenactors in the country anymore. They're, they're you know, the, on the authentic side, we we certainly can't field that many people to to put something like that together, which leads to the the large complaints about many battalions and lots of headquarters heavy groups that don't have enough enough troops to support them. And I I concur with that on on a couple of levels, but I will say, you know, getting back to your point as far as motivations and yes if you see it in its in its parts 19th century warfare at least mid 19th century warfare is largely changed by the rifle musket but the tactics doesn't don't change with it and so that's that's why the the stand up fights you have these huge casualty ratios uh, i don't know if i can explain it per se as to why they they fought the the way they did or fought as they did Certainly, there's some great books on the subject. You know, Billy Yank and Johnny Reb by Bill Evan Wiley. It's a great study. It's a classic study. and largely focuses on the Eastern Theater with the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia. You're not going to see as, as many uh, accounts within at least those two volume sets focusing on, on more Western things. So I don't think it's as complete. But one book, it's very good. It's called uh, Earl Hess. Is, by Earl Hess, is called The Union Soldier in Battle which does do a great job of talking about the psychology and trying to understand, at least from the federal side, of, of why, why they fought as they did. Uh, I think there's some good, good memoirs and other items out there that kind of delve into that. You certainly will see a little bit more a chest-thumping, a little more heart-pounding, heart or at least you know, beating of the heart for the the cause and the great cause in a couple of memoirs, but I'm not sure if that's an exclusive piece either. One of the most gritty, realistic accounts of warfare that I've seen in the Civil War, of course, is you know my handle on, on online is Ambrose Bierce, and and many of the things that he talks about really gritty, stark, even morbid descriptions of of combat and and soldiers serving as they do. So I think what you're asking is actually a pretty layered question. It is not yes. <laughs> sim simple to answer. Um, 
I could think of a, a, a sub way to uh, uh, a sub question out of that. Is, okay. and, and this leads into uh, um, your own experience in the sense that um, why leadership was so important during the Civil War. So here you have armies facing each other in this suicidal combat. Um, but it, but then you had to have officers leading at the front. You had to have guys with experience up front who were cool under fire to encourage these guys to do what they did. And, and um, um, I'm going to tease at this uh, <laughs> that uh, um, lesser known fact, maybe some people know that uh, Ivan has been a model for some Don Triani paintings. And uh, <laughs> uh, I love, he's my favorite. Uh, uh, and Jeff, and Jeff Trexler now. So. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah, right. That's a beautiful painting. I saw that. And, uh, but uh, to say that um, there's a Don Triani painting, one of his many, and it's a painting uh, called The Men Must See Us Today. And it depicts Colonel Augustus Ellis of the 124th New York at Devil's Den at Gettysburg. And mm -hmm. it was this moment in the middle of the battle where he and his staff, um, the battle was getting hectic uh, and the smoke and the carnage, confusion. He chose to get mounted and his major and I think his adjutant all mounted together and you know, even his own men were like, sir, you know, what are you doing? You don't need to do that. But he said, the men must see us today. And in the heat of a battle in a moment like that, where, you know, yeah, it may look stupid, but in the sense he's doing that to inspire these guys to do uh, the crazy. Um, if you have anything like that, the kind of. Uh, yeah. I mean, you remember that, that, that Reynolds at the first day at Gettysburg will push it. His, his words were forward for God's sakes for drive them from the woods. And he was on horseback. He's driving, he's pushing the iron brigade away from seminary Ridge and into Willoughby or into the, the woods along Willoughby run. And he gets killed. Uh, and this is not in any way to, to say what a damn fool he, he, he in fact felt that's where he needed to be at the point of friction and leaders do need to be at the point of friction. Also remember that in the, in the night, combat and i use that as sort of the the, the centrist period mm -hmm. seen as a coward was tantamount to i mean that was just social uh suicide you you could not be thought of to, you, better to die than not do your duty and that scene in in you know a, a movie about the british in uh afghanistan or the northwest area here uh, called the four feathers uh Amber spears right writes a story about that and a, and a, and a man who, who tried very hard to live up to his fiance's ideal of of what a man should be and when she finds out that he is thought to be a coward that he he tries everything he can to to not live up to that and and uh or at least Mm -hmm. get 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 that behind him because he doesn't it's an unfair castigation and certainly men fight fight for each other they fight for their units they fought, fought in a large part to end the war you end the war you don't have to do this uh the reasons are kind of irrespective of the whys of its origin or why it was fought you're going back to the civil wars to whether it was to preserve states rights uh a touchy subject but it slavery is an, an interwoven and and non you can't ignore it as part mm -hmm. of the the landscape of of the civil war um or even the the, the 
resumption, per the the preservation of the union, you take that all away, and you've just got the the fighting man. You've got the people who are actually doing doing this on the, on the sharp end, and so the the officers themselves are expected to not only be brave and do well in combat, but the the men who find them drunk or cowardly that affects their reputation and there are plenty of examples out there of anything from the company all the way to the general general officer company graded general officer who are not able to function not only because of the pressure but they get drunk or they feel that they need to walk off the this the, the field uh, the, these things uh, unfortunately there, there there's basis of fact in in these there's unfortunately human beings being put in very difficult situations and expected to act courageously as you read about those that do well it certainly steals the the, the resolve that that you could maybe do it yourself and on other sides for all the things i've done i didn't stand in the wheat field i have not been at pickett's mill i don't i don't know chickamauga and I think that goes back to what we're talking about is you're not really trying to recapture that fear, perhaps that loathing, that inability to act. But you want to understand a small part of what the Civil War experience was to these people. And if, if you can capture a small part of that on a weekend, then, then maybe you're achieving something. And that's a long another long answer, but that, that's kind of that's kind of how I view it. Oh, no, that's great. And, um, and you know, uh, it kind of leads to my next question, where uh, you have the rare experience of being knowledgeable in both uh, modern warfare, modern tactics, and well-versed in the manuals of warfare in the 1860s, uh, which not too many people can say. And, um, you know, do you, you know, yes, obviously, you know, nothing is like there's some things that maybe haven't changed in army life. And there's a lot of things that obviously have changed. I mean, the whole landscape has changed in, in warfare, but as far as leadership goes and soldier life goes, do you see any similarities between now versus then? And I, I well, that's a broad question. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I mean, there's, there are plenty of guys who hobby who've been in the military and participated in, combat operations some of them are highly i know so i'm not going to call them out on on or you know say their names you know for for out of respect for their experiences but there there are people with bronze stars or people with silver stars mm. uh who have purple hearts who have done really impressive things in the modern in modern wars and act some people would say they're they're crazy you should probably hang it up probably say the same thing about me but uh, the, the the main parallels, going all the way back to the time of the Romans, is one you're you're carrying about the same amount of equipment. Uh, it's hot. It's sweaty. Boredom is boredom. Uh, fear is fear. Mm-hmm. Modern combat is certainly different than than that of the Civil War. But being shot at and enduring battle is mentally and physically taxing. We certainly have better opportunity to treat wounds and and make better recoveries. But the trauma associated with with being involved in those things and seeing your friends hurt and and heck even the elation of getting mail Mm. they can figure out a way to email a cookie uh you're you're always going to want to get a package or something to to feel like someone is is 
thinking about you. So those items, that that common soldiering has has not changed and and will not change. It's just a matter of, of a time time space and distance piece. But uh, I certainly have a heck of a lot of respect for the for for anybody who's who served and and not everybody was. Not everybody was in the infantry, and not everybody was, you know, in combat arms. They all d- did what they, in the modern times, I should say, they all did what they were assigned to do and, and did it well. And just remember that uh, it's generally about a four to one ratio between support and logistics personnel to someone being in combat. So for the quartermaster, going back to the Civil War, switching gears here, quartermaster, the sheer number of wagon trains, supplies, uh, ordnance, all the things that actually have to get somebody in a unit to the battle it takes an awful lot to support a group of uh, a large we're talking divisions tens of thousands of people i think people that's one piece that you know, the hobbyists can't really fathom just thinking back to rosecrans pursuit there's a sheer number of what 400 wagons look like to support a brigade mm. going snaking over lookout mountain and coming up into that area that we were which is which is really what led to Sherman after Atlanta in particular getting ready to march to the sea and then into the Carolinas. He cut the wagon trains. I think it was one wagon per battalion. And an army wagon is actually not that big. So that meant that a lot of people had to leave a lot of things behind because the priority was for ammunition and food. And that's where you really get into foraging and living off the land. So it's a much more uh, flexible or requires a much more flexible type of person to conduct that kind of warfare. And um Again, this is the, it's sort of a circuitous discussion, but mm-hmm. for us where we fought in the modern war, having good leadership and having people who were competent and knew how to keep you resupplied so that you could continue to do your job, I mean, they were, they're probably more important than the, than, than the actual people out there pulling triggers when, when it comes down to it uh, because the sustainability was, was everything and the Civil War is no different. Oh, that's great. And, and, you know, um, uh, you touched on a lot there. <laughs> that That's great. And, and um, especially that, like you said earlier, um, you're, you're still the modern soldier versus soldier then they still miss home. They still want those care packages home. Heck yeah. uh, and, and that's something that um, uh, I know you've done and, and several others have done at events where we actually had a mail call at, at a reenactment where, uh, we had a box from home and all the cakes and goodies in there. And that's always fun. And, and even in that short weekend, you get that excitement of the hike. And, and, uh, um, myself, um, I had a friend, um, serving, uh, in uh, Afghanistan. And at one point, and I took this for granted, but I remember one time, uh, I got a letter from him and, and in the letter, he was almost like, like, Hey, feel free to write or tell your folks, tell your family to like send me a letter every now and then. Like, like, you know, in the modern era, you don't always, you know, uh, think of letter writing. I, I try to as often as I can, but it's kind of like um, we take for granted what, you know, these guys are going through a lot and they miss home a lot. And so any little thing, any, uh, whether it's a cookie or an envelope, they get in the mail, like you said, uh, that means a lot to them. And, and another thing you uh, uh, that kind of touch on it, uh, logistics-wise is um, uh, like the wagon trains, like you're saying, it's incredible to me, especially uh, um, I'm doing a lot of research on Gettysburg lately, so it's fresh in my mind. But 
uh, the retreat from Gettysburg, uh, Lee's wagon train having to retreat in torrential rain, mud, tons of wounded, uh, road clogs, and and you know, at, at the in the blink of an eye, you could lose all of your supplies for an entire army. You know, and most of them did get captured. Uh, you know, in the modern era, our vehicles, you know, we we can probably get through weather a lot better now than we did then. But, um, you know, just the the devastating effect that it could have back then, um, logistics wise, where an army could starve at the drop of a hat, kind of. Um, well, and and that's that's what happened at opening the cracker line at Wahatchee. You can't you can't imagine that mm-hmm. Chattanooga was besieged, and it and it took these this pretty aggressive overland camp to open it up. You know, whole whole Union army hold up at that point after Chickamauga. So, I mean, it's uh, it, it, it can and does happen. There's parallels even in the Ukraine for how to keep things resupplied. I don't want to get too modern politics here or in, in world events, but I mean, this, going back to what you're talking about, these, 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 these campaigning soldiering problems, they're always going to exist. And mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, and it's, it's really incredible. And, and to, uh, um, to add on all of this, um, I ask you, do you, what do you admire about the soldiers of the civil war? Is there like, is there an asset, uh, something in particular that, that you admire about what these guys did? Well, certainly their tenacity, they work through tremendous hardships, it's clear from the memoirs and many of the accounts that they had pride, a tremendous amount of pride in their service, their independence. Uh, and it really shows the true mark of the American soldier, the American fighting, fighting man, the service member at this point, but it's just the profession of arms that even though yes, you had a regular army, largely fought by volunteers, largely fought, you know, by people who came from, common backgrounds within their states, but then came together to work towards a common goal. I, I, I just think it's a really interesting dynamic and, and many, I mean, there's a reason the civil war is still studied at West Point. There's a reason that the fighting man and to what we were just talking about in the, in the last little segment is, is studied for just how they got through all of this. So, I I think that the, the the American Civil War, the soldier, the common soldier in the American Civil War, sold is is an absolute example of of tenacity and and perseverance. Wow, and uh, that's exactly right, Ivan. And I actually just before this interview, um, I've been doing a lot of research, and I just read this excerpt. I'm going to read it now, but this is an excerpt from a book written right after the war, 1866. And the book is called The Fighting Quakers. And it's about two brothers um, who served in the Union Army. And one of them served in the 4th New York Cavalry. But uh, the editor of the book uh, wrote this snippet, which uh, I think really wraps up uh, a lot of what we're talking about. And this is it. Uh, The quote is, The story of Gettysburg and all its details will be a lasting memorial of courage and devotion that battle was the turning point of our natural, national fortunes. The deeds of our officers and the glorious rank and file who supported them will live in the history of our republic 
and their results endure as the heritage of a restored union. The names of Gettysburg's heroes and martyrs, an illustrious role of patriots, will be inscribed on monuments. Their stories will enlist the pen of future chronicles. Their example will inspire the hearts of our citizens. And um, I, I just felt like when I read that a few minutes ago, I was like, that really sums up a lot of the feeling. And that was written just right after the war, before a lot of these monuments were even made. And it, really, the, the large numbers of memoirs in the late 1880s and, and early 1890s. So you're, you're looking at 25 to 30 years after the war. And I think there was a reconciliation post-Reconstruction post and then trying to, to really understand what's, what the war was all about. And, and, and veterans go through this. As a collective psyche, though, I think the U United States at that point in time, it took a long time to come to terms with exactly what the Civil War was and meant. And it certainly had an impact on, on American society for, for many, many, it still does, many, many years based upon political outcomes and deep-seated distrust, deep-seated feelings, and there was a, a and Ambrose Bierce touches on this in sort of his sardonic way, but in the study of Phantoms of a Bloodstained Period, which is the Civil War, the collective Civil War works of of Ambrose Bierce, that really talks deeply about how his approach to the way he wrote was meant to be an exact opposite of the glory of the flag and the, the 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 charge up the hill that saved the day and and how momentous it was to be a soldier in the American Civil War his was much more stark much more well I, I've said gritty but that's that's the word much just in, incredibly straightforward that mm -hmm. this was this was nothing to be celebrated it was a horrible time yeah. In, in American history, it was a horrible time in human history. And anybody who had some idea of, of, of the glory of, of fighting for, for, for home and country, that bled away, no pun intended, within the first moments of, of their combat, their exposure to combat. And so yeah. I, I believe that that, which was written in 1866, that your passage you just wrote was probably a preamble, a foreshadowing of what people were going to write about as going forward in the next 20 years, because they'd already made an assessment of just how horrible the whole thing was. And they had to make some sense or give some account of what happened in such a way that it could be palatable. Because what you don't think about is the 60,000 casualties at Gettysburg, mm -hmm. the 26,000 casualties at Antietam. And mm -hmm. after the, the armies have retreated and the Dunker Church is being used as a hospital and someone, the people who live in that area, have to come and clean up all of this. Like yeah. the, the dead have to get buried. The wounded have to be put somewhere. To your point of, of Lee losing his, his wagon train and going back with all of their wounded to get it back across the Potomac to reset for yet another 
Mm-hmm. You know, but by 1864, at that same period of time, he's fighting in the wilderness against Grant, who's not relentless. He's not going to let up. And casualties be damned, he'd rather end the war than continue uh, another few years of plotting non-engagement like McClellan. So you know, in eighteen in eighteen sixty-two, so th- th- there's a much bigger human cost here that, in many ways, is an example. It's not just numbers on the page. I think people need to think about that, particularly when we go to try and do recreations. And, and I've talked with some 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 really good friends of mine who I do living history with, who even said, hey, "Do we even need to do combat scenarios because you can't really do them a- adequately?" And and I, I don't want to get into a huge debate about that right here, but they but they may, they have a point. There's 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 things to think about. Mm. Uh, there is a lot. <laughs> There's a lot to think about uh, anytime uh, you put those together. And and um, um, thank you for that. You really touched on a lot right there. I'm, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying listening <laughs> to you. And, um, uh, you know, on that same note, um, I know you're a huge uh, uh, fan of, of Ambrose Spears um, and his writings. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, he was... Um, I believe he was an officer in the Ninth Indiana, I think, in the Army of the Cumberland, and um, he wrote a lot of, of uh, original accounts of, I think, fighting at Pickett's Mill, and but then he also wrote a lot of uh, fiction at the end of the war. But uh, if you could uh, say how you got introduced to him, how you um, uh, started reading uh, his works, and also are there any other uh, diaries, memoirs, or histories that you really enjoyed? Well, it's probably easier to talk about the, the diaries. I mean, I have plenty of books that I that I enjoy. Probably better to read about to start with the diaries and memoirs and things like that of the Civil War. Uh, a Yankee Private's Civil War is a very good one. I think that's Robert Strong, Hardtack and Coffee by John Billings. Oh yeah, uh, Cy Cleggan is part. There, there's a bit of a complaint that it's a work of fiction, but it's not. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a fictionalized account of of some a very real soldiering experience uh a very excellent uh memoir of the cavalry experience since the civil war is called common soldier uncommon war a little Mm. bit harder to find but a lot of people don't realize that the federal cavalry suffered the second most and second highest numbers of casualties in the in the civil war and proportionately higher numbers of casualties based upon the numbers engaged, uh, wow. which, which, which is, there was an old very derisive term called, did you ever see a dead cavalryman? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but they, they really fought their, they, they, they fought very hard. The sheer numbers of horses and mules that were used in the American civil war is staggering. And I think through reading those types of memoirs when I was younger, I then got turned on to Ambrose Bierce based upon my interest in the Battle of Chickamauga and to your point of Pickett's Mill. And mm-hmm. he had firsthand accounts of those, which when I first picked them up, I thought this would be an eyewitness account. What I didn't realize is how just stark and mm-hmm. dis- disturbing <laughs> that the reading that the writing was how morbid it was. And I thought, my gosh, what, what more has this guy got to say? And of course you, then you do some research about the guy and it turns out he was just a very, very sad, very, uh, yeah. I mean, he's, it's kind of a miserable person. Um, I mean, I have his, I have a great affinity and interest in the things that he wrote because I can identify with it. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm like him, <laughs> but he, but, but he, he absolutely, 
spoke to me. And as, as a, as a veteran myself, I, I understood his perspective. I'm, I'm nothing in the way I'm writing. Do I want to be just so overt in my disdain for my, my fellow chroniclers, but he was, that's how he felt. He thought that these, that going back to what I originally said, that he felt, felt the things that were being written and how they were being written just were doing lip service and, and short shrift to what the experience actually was like. So through all of those, those histories and one of my favorite units is the 125th Ohio. So I read about Emerson Updike. You talk about leadership and leadership at the point of friction, you know, what he was doing at Franklin and the way he led his unit were, was tremendous. Um, but you know, Beerson and some of these other firsthand authors or these, these authors who developed firsthand accounts and delivered firsthand accounts are a incredible realistic glimpse into what staff and soldiering staff life and soldiering was like in the civil war in various periods of time. And then it's, there, there are other unit histories out there, but I, I think everybody can find one. I, I also love, the uh, Strayer and Baumgartner accounts, particularly oh, yeah. of the West, you know, the, the campaign for Chattanooga and Kennesaw Mountain and, and uh, Yankee Tigers, got another 125th Ohio piece. So I'll stop there. But gosh, I mean, at this point, we're just so going many. alphabetically, right? I mean, <laughs> you've got a book on Civil War regiments. I like that book. I thought that was good. <laughs> uh, and, and, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff out there that people people can can read. So. And uh, um, uh, there really is. And right now, I, I'm, I've been deep diving myself into reading just about every Army of Potomac regimental history I can get my hands on right now for my um, Gettysburg project, and which I look forward to having that out soon. But um, uh, lately, the last few uh, days, I've been reading nothing but uh, accounts of the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac. So funny you, you mentioned that because uh, uh, all of them or most of them hint at the, the derision that you, you hinted at and mentioned that you've ever seen dead cavalrymen and because they get a lot of crap talk for Gettysburg uh, sometimes. I mean, uh, yes, they started the battle and all that, but like, um, but one thing that I'm, I'm that I've uh, seen that in the writings that I've read is they did a whole lot of work before and after Gettysburg that, that people kind of forget about like these guys, you know, from the beginning of June, they fought at Brandy Station. They they chased Jeb Stewart around. Uh, they're they're going all the way up north, and then after the battle, they're protecting the army, chasing Lee. And um, these guys write about the sheer exhaustion. And so, one cavalry unit at Gettysburg, they said, "Yeah, we didn't do anything at Gettysburg, but we sure did before and after." And and he just talked about how as soon as they got to the battlefield, when they weren't needed, they kind of just collapsed in the field. They fed their horses and collapsed in the field from exhaustion. But it kind of helped me because um, a lot of us can buy into the big narratives. And, and uh, I, that's why I always I respect the word of the eyewitnesses. The guys went through it. And, and sure, also, like you said, there's a lot of accounts out there, a lot of memoirs that are a lot of chest thumping. Uh, guys sound like they're in the thick of the battle everywhere they go or you know uh, they write all about the glory and then you have guys who are brutally honest like uh, Ambrose Beers who that may not have been popular writing at that time but it's more interesting now as the years go on but it's like uh, um, to me I always appreciate the the words of whether whether the veterans remember all the details or not you're still hearing from the veterans 
the guys who actually lived it. And um, uh, those are my number one favorite books to read, her diaries and, and memoirs and regimental histories, because uh, they were all written by the actual soldiers. So I really, um, there's so many, there's so many out there. It's great. Yes. And Longacre's book on the, the, the federal cavalry at Gettysburg is, is a fantastic treatment of the entire, you, you pretty much summed it up, that, that 15, 20 day period between June and July, late June, mm-hmm. and then into early July. And of course, there's a whole cavalry battlefield, you know, at Gettysburg that for the third day that a lot of people don't even get, they don't even notice it because it's overshadowed by everything else that happened there. Uh, having, having ridden my own horse, very long distances, spinning in the saddle, getting rained on, like you said, you do that for just a weekend and realize that these, these guys are doing 30, some guys are doing 200 miles in, in several weeks, their horses are losing shoes. Then their hooves are just basically falling apart and, and then they have to replace the horse. It, 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 it's, it's staggering. It's, it's an amazing feat to, to even contemplate how, how to continue doing that and doing it at the regimental scale. Now you're going into Brandy Station with the largest cavalry battle in the, in the war and then immediately changing from there to, to go right into uh, the combat at Gettysburg. And then there's, of course, the entire Mosby saga in that mm-hmm. upper, upper northern Virginia area, which just has its own history. And you talk about ways that you can get lost in, in memoirs and, and, and in the areas. Just take a drive down Route 50 through Middleburg and you're right in Mosby country. And then imagine riding out on a horse and it'll probably make you want to go out and buy one if it weren't so expensive. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's awesome. And uh, uh, we're winding down, uh, Ivan, and uh, I just have a couple more questions for you. And uh, to go back to something that we mentioned near the beginning, um, you have a passion for the, the Battle of Bentonville, the Bentonville Battle of Carolina. And uh, you've organized uh, the events there, helped with that and fundraisers. But, but what draws you to that battlefield in particular at Bentonville? That goes back to the 125th. I, have, I, went, I participated in it. And like you said, I, I hadn't been to a place where you could actually march on the battlefield and then dig in and set mm-hmm. up breastwork, just be a part of scenario the way that it did unfolds there so that planted a seed for really liking the area i was living in north carolina at the time so it made it convenient for me to help organize that with with taylor mccullen who also had a lot of access to people in that area ben tart was a big big help as well he's he lives right outside of bentonville Mm. in uh, uh newton grove that's where his his main loom and shop is so between Ben Tart and myself, we had long conversations about how we wanted this thing to work. Uh, but I, th- I think also it was the last major campaign and set peace battle of the war. And, you know, Johnson tried his best, just wasn't enough in that part of 1865 to make it happen for the Confederates. Uh, it's a neat battlefield. I got to know uh, Amanda uh, Brantley and, and, and the people who worked there uh, to, to tell them what we wanted to do they allowed us to put a vision into action. Most of the original ground is still intact, except for most of the 
by private farms, you know, the areas around it, some of the original roads that go through it are now paved. But you can still go out to Cox's Bridge and Crossroads where my answer spot in the 10th Iowa and, and see that area. Uh, it's, yeah, it has a special place for me. Wow, and uh, that, that actually reminded me. Um, wow, so you, you actually had ancestors in the tenth Iowa. So, could uh, in a briefly, uh, could you talk about um, your actual ancestors and and what they did, or especially yep. what they did in, in relation to Bentonville, right there? Well, the, the, I know that they fought at Bentonville, which the tenth Iowa was only really engaged at Cox's Crossroads, and that's about. Uh, Bentonville Visitor Center, but when we portrayed them, uh, John, my my ancestors' name were, were John and and, um, and the two of them were a father and son combination. John joined, I'm sorry, Jared Deringer. I said Brian. That's not right. John and Jared Deringer, who were originally from right outside of Pella, Iowa. And when Jared joined at the age of 18, his father was 44 years old and his father joined to go with his son because his wife wanted his son to have a, uh, a partner, a part, a campaigning, somebody who could look out for him. So these two, this father and son combination campaigned through the war together from late 1863 through 1865. And... At the time, my son and I were, were portraying you know, we're in the Civil War hobby together. And Sean and I have been, been doing stuff in the Civil War for hobby for quite a while. We've been reenacting together for quite a while. He and I were exactly the same age as our ancestors were 150 years to the day at Bentonville, portraying oh. the same unit. So, Man, that, that's fascinating. Uh, 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 that gives me a uh, chills. Just that's what excites me. That kind of stuff. Um, well, I'll, I'll do one I, better for you. I, so, so my, brother, my so, so my buddy uh, Paul McCurley and Dave Thomas, they portray Stars Battery, um, artillery battery. It's a Confederate battery that actually fought against the Tenth Iowa at Cox's Crossroads and Cox's Bridge, and they reached into their limber chest one day. And pulled out a, a, a piece of, of of shell, of ordnance shell that had been fired from a, a three-inch ordnance rifle at that battle, that engagement. And they said, yeah, we recovered this from Cox's Bridge. And I always think to myself that if that, I held that piece in my hand and I, I thought to myself, if, if that piece of shell had gone one way or the other, I might not be here. Yeah. So you want to talk about a, holding a link to, to your well, you got to kind of recreate it with your own with your own son. That was that's one of those moments you don't get to have pretty often, I don't think. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Ivan. That that's incredible. That's really fascinating stuff there. Wow. Awesome. And um to really um uh, uh my final question for you is uh uh you're recently retired uh, uh from the service and um, in your retirement, are there any uh, bucket list battlefields that, uh, you'd like to visit or any uh, particular research you'd like to pursue uh, from the Civil War? I was very fortunate to be able to go to most of the Eastern theater battlefields. And I say most. I, I think I've been to all of them in some capacity, but there's plenty of small ones I, 
I, I need to engage with or, or, or go to, but I like to call them lifeless because it's all you got, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there's so much I want to do. I do love the artillery and cavalry aspects. Uh, having done infantry for so long, it's it's two other perspectives. You know, as we talked about with Rosecrans Pursuit from off into the same campaign. So I'm exploring that from a completely different side, particularly peace. Uh, not so much civil war, but I'd, I've never been out to the Little Bighorn in Montana. And oh, that's, yeah. a carry, that's a carry on. <laughs> of course, from the Civil War, all all those never mind Custer, but the people who were for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, and then the people running the military at that point, Army Sherman to William Sheridan, they all learned their war fighting craft during the Civil War, and then and then took it out, took it with them out to the West, uh, and then there's also a host of Southern battlefields I needed to see. Vicksburg's one of them. Uh, I definitely needed to, to to spend a little bit more time in Shiloh, exploring some of the parts of of, of the Civil War that, while I've been to, haven't gotten a full appreciation for. I, I've been I'd, I'd done the reenactment of Chickamauga and I'd been to Chickamauga once or twice, but it wasn't until I did a really good living history a couple of years ago with Herb Coates and, and Tyler Underwood, and we're actually walking the area out there, to, that I got a great appreciation for just what what chickamauga is and, and how how it works so yeah there's there's plenty to do there's plenty to read um all kinds kinds of research projects and probably some events along the line that that we'll we'll, we'll eventually get to but uh, right now i'm just gonna kind of enjoy the space i'm in and and man this things like this are a lot of fun. I like these kinds of projects. I haven't had this opportunity to do that before. So Steve, I'll, I'll thank you for that. Oh, well, the possibilities are, are endless and uh, there's just so many more avenues we can all take in our love of history. Uh, you know, we could study a, a battle that we've already studied or go to a battlefield that we've already been to, but we can look at it at a different angle, a different perspective and see it for the first time in a sense uh, in a different lens. And, um, and I will say um, uh, another battlefield I had a privilege to share with you uh, was Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga. And and being up there um, after hours in the park and, you know, we're up there at Point Park uh, on top of Lookout Mountain and looking over the city at night. Uh, that was a fun experience and uh, another occasion where we're sleeping on the actual battlefield and. Uh, one of many highlighted moments again, um, like, uh, and I'll probably share it on the, on the Facebook page, uh, the picture of our company at that event on the, on the rock, on the point. Yeah. Uh, I remember, I remember everybody's very... with hobnails and, and heel plates for, for afraid of <laughs> slipping off. So that, that was, that, that was an adventure in and of it. Oh, it was a re- really great time. And, and really, uh, our hobby, our shared hobby gives us those opportunities that that maybe uh, uh you wouldn't get um otherwise and uh yeah for me being able to sleep on these battlefields march on these battlefields um camping cooking uh you know doing it all where they actually did it uh, it's something remarkable and so i thank you for uh giving me the opportunities uh to do that and and many others and and everyone who helped you uh to assist you in all that and I salute your efforts for that. But Ivan, this has been um, an honor. Um, I'm so glad uh, it worked out and, and I got here. This is great. Oh, you bet. 
and, and I love I love your writing. I love you have a passion for the Civil War too. Uh, and I have your short stories on the docket. So thanks for considering me. We'll, this won't be our last conversation, Steve. So thanks a lot. Oh well, thank you, Ivan, and I look forward to uh, your next interviews, your next works, and uh, I look forward to what's down the road and and the events to come and the campfires we get to share in the future. Uh, but again. Thank you so much, Ivan. Um, this has been a blast. Um, I look forward to next time.